This is JCU Conversations, a podcast show from James Cook University, Singapore. Tune in as we ask experts in the industry more about their lives and their approach to success. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's listen to today's episode. Hi, my name is May Tan Mullins. I'm the Dean International and the Chief Sustainability Officer from the James Cook University in Singapore. This is JCU Conversation, a podcast show from James Cook University, Singapore, where we ask experts in the industry more about their lives and their approach to success. Our guest today is Dr. Darren McBain. Dr. McBain is the Sustainability Advisor at Monetary Authority of Singapore. With over 20 years of experience in sustainability and communications, Darren is a globally recognized expert, speaker, and author on sustainability, supply chains, business human rights, and sustainable finance. She is a UN SDG pioneer for a sustainable ocean economy in 2021 and a fast company most creative people in business 2020. She was appointed in 2021 as the inaugural Chief Sustainability Officer for the Monetary Authority of Singapore and is now an advisor on sustainability. Welcome, Darren. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, May. It's great to be here. So I'm just going to ask you a series of questions and starting one by asking about your history and background. You are an engineer, you're a scientist and science communicator, and that's a lot of different callings. What sparked your interest in going down this stemmed path? And of course, referring to science, technology, engineering and mathematics. So I was always interested in science and mathematics. So I do really well in communications type of subjects at school, but actually it was the mathematics and the science that drove my passion. And I suppose I had a fairly idyllic childhood growing up in Australia with wallabies and koalas and living kind of on the outskirts of Brisbane in the bush. So there was our house block and beyond that was just the bush. We couldn't even see the edge of that. And so I think living in nature really gave me an appreciation for the natural sciences. And so when it came to choosing a career, I was looking at, should I be a vet? Uh, And there was a new course that was coming out from the University of New South Wales, which was environmental engineering. And it was the first time it was offered in Australia. And I can Mm. remember seeing in the handbook, uh, there was this picture of a, a marsh bird standing in a wetland. And I was like, that's it, that's what I want to do. That's combining the engineering that I I really like from the mathematics side with that natural sciences side of my passion and interest. Mm -hmm. And then how do you move on to do what you're doing now to become a chief sustainability officer and, you know, really trying to support organizations in this field? So I think it was deeply unpopular when I first started studying environmental engineering. Nobody knew what an environmental engineer would do. And we thought that probably we'd work for local councils and perhaps build bridges that were more sustainable. Um, So I actually trained as a wastewater engineer. So that is my technical expertise, you know, when I was doing my undergraduate work. So I first of all worked for the New South Wales Environment Protection Authority. So it was Mm -hmm. great to be with an environmental regulator. And I guess now being with a financial regulator, I've kind of come full circle. So I've worked for government, obviously starting off with the EPA. I've worked for intergovernment, so that's the UN. I've Mm -hmm. worked for the International Maritime Organization. 
I worked in healthcare for many years and particularly on supply chains. And that's where I really started to get into business human rights and supply chains as a way that you can look at embedding sustainability in businesses. Uh, then I worked for WWF for a while in Australia. So I was the lead on sustainable palm oil. I ran my own business, consulting business, working with companies who wanted to be more sustainable. Um, after I did my PhD, which was looking at human rights and environmental issues in global supply chains, mm. I was approached to join Thai Union, which is one of the largest seafood processors in the world. And I moved to Thailand to lead their sustainability efforts. So that was really my first chief sustainability officer role, where I was reporting to the CEO and on the leadership team. Um, and then after that role, I joined the Monetary Authority of Singapore and MAS is the first central bank in the world to employ a chief sustainability officer. Yeah. It's quite amazing you move between different sectors as well as different types of organisation. You say you mentioned you worked in a private organisation to WWF, which is an NGO, and then, and then IOM and, and UN, etc., which are international organisations. Among these many different types of organisation, which one is the most fun to work in in terms of sustainability? They're all fun, and I find whichever one I do for a while, then I think, ah, oh, but if only there was X aspect. So I worked for the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, and I was working on sustainability, and that's where I really got into supply chains. So I worked for the Purchasing and Supply Agency, which was one of the largest purchasers in the world. And we used to say that we bought everything from scanners to baked beans. Mm. And when I was working there, I really got into this idea of how much can you know about a supply chain without actually going onto the ground and, and investigating it. And at this time, I was looking at surgical instruments from Pakistan and if they were made with child labor, if cotton swabs from China had forced labor. The NHS wasn't paying for me to fly to these countries. So... It actually was the question that I had burning in my mind when I started my PhD, which I started back in Australia. And then I worked with WWF for a while and the opportunity came up to work at Thai Union. And I thought, mm. this is the ideal place, you know, going back to your question of which one is the most fun. I thought to lead sustainability for a global company which sources all around the world from oceans and on land, it provides goods to consumers. This was the place that I could really bring all of that knowledge from all of those different organizations together. And so I have to say that was a lot of fun. It was a great role. It was a company that didn't have much on sustainabilities to start with, but they had the vision to be leaders, global leaders in sustainability. So to have that permission essentially to do what it took to be a leader was a great opportunity to build the team, and working in the private sector and seeing how much the private sector can lead on sustainability. Yeah, I always believed it's important to work with the private sector partly because they are the source of the problem in terms of a lot of environment, environmental degradation, etc. And um, with Thai Union, you also create a lot of impact because you're not just within a country, you're looking across the global supply chain, which is quite amazing in that sense. Moving on again, I would like to ask you, because it, again, to envisage you moving from environmental engineering into sustainability, is there, is there a point where you decide this is really something you want to go into, that sustainability is your passion and you are going to devote the next 40 years of your life in this field? 
So when I studied environmental engineering, sustainability wasn't even a commonly used term. So if you look at the Brundtland Report, uh, which came out in 1987, mm. that was when sustainability in that concept became a lot more popular. You had the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, which started to talk about sustainability. But actually, most of the discussion was on the environment. So yeah. I studied environmental engineering because I don't think there was anything that you could study on sustainability at that time. Mm. But as I moved through my career, I think, as you see with many other protocols, people started to realize that just looking at the environment probably wasn't going to be successful and you needed yeah. to look much more broadly. And so if you look at what we have now, the framework of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which came out in 2015, they obviously go across 17 different areas. And I know JCU does a lot of work with the Sustainable Development Goals, but it's recognizing that there are the social issues, there are the environmental issues, there's governance and how we all work together. And so I think as my career evolved, actually people's thinking about sustainability has also evolved. So many of the jobs that I've done didn't actually exist when I started my training. Yeah. So it's not just about your passion evolving. The sector is also evolving and becoming more uh, enlarged and encompassing in different fields as well. That's excellent. You have two decades of experience, you know, across different sustainability roles and different sectors. What would you say is the most common thread linking all these roles? I mean, obviously sustainability, but other than that, the types of skills and the types of knowledge, what, what is the common thread that links across these different roles? So for me personally, it's about having an impact. So whatever I'm trying to do, whether I consciously recognize it or not, I am thinking of, am I having a positive impact on the world? And so a lot of the work where I started to move into human rights and business human rights was seeing the conditions that people had to work in and starting to think, how can I have a positive impact on these people's lives? As for the skills, I think having a scientific background is very important. So if we look at climate change, for example, a lot of the communication is actually science communication. And yet you see people working in sustainability now and they probably don't understand what the carbon cycle is or the water cycle, the basic fundamentals of science. And so I would say the knowledge of science is important, but then the ability to communicate. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think is sometimes underrated in a technical sustainability professional, because you can have all of the knowledge and do all of the studies in the world. But if you can't convey that to someone and if you can't perhaps change their behavior to mm -hmm. being more sustainable, then you need to question the impact. And I think we're seeing that again with climate change. The science isn't new, mm. but how we get people to change, how we get companies to change, how governments can start to make different commitments, a lot of that stems from how we can communicate the risks and the opportunities and what that path forward can be. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on in terms of communication because uh, in my opinion, a lot of the scientists and scientific reports doesn't translate to the layman's term and it makes us quite challenging to really understand the whole concept of climate change, etc. You mentioned about HR, human rights and, and business ethics as well. Uh, and you parked it under sustainability. Could you explain a little bit more perhaps because our audience couldn't quite make the connection how would human rights be part of sustainability? 
A lot of people now talk about ESG, environment, social and governance. And I think of those three letters as being the data points that you need to connect for sustainability. So sustainability, going back to the Brundtland Report definition, refers to the idea of can I continue to do this, whatever it is, activity indefinitely without harming the chances of future generations to be able to lead their lives. So there's this concept of time. So if you look at environment, social and governance, you have those three criteria because actually if one gets out of balance, then the whole system won't work. And, and before we had ESG, you used to look at people, planet, profit. Yes. Or maybe line, yes. environment, society, <laughs> economy. It, it's still that concept of those three pieces that need to all be in balance for you to have sustainability. So when we look at ESG, I think we're actually missing a letter from the acronym, which is the T, which is time because a snapshot of data, ESG, that's good, and that can help you know where you are now, but you need to be able to translate it to how will this translate into action over time and what will the impact be when you start to look at it. So I see people as being an essential part of ESG in the S part, or if you're looking at the people, planet, profit, you know, no matter which way you look at it, actually it's people who need to be in the center and human rights is a vital part of how we look at people and society. Mm, very interesting. You mentioned uh, the 17 SDG goals as well. So in your opinion, um, I know I know it's, it's like they're all your kids, right? You can't quite be unfair and we have favoritism again, one against the other. But in today's context, what do you think is the most vital that, that's been least looked at in terms of the 17 SDG goals that we should put more attention to? So I am biased. I am biased towards you SDG have a favorite 14. Child. <laughs> I have a favorite child. It's both my favorite color. It's blue. Mm. It is the least invested of the sustainable development goals. So that's SDG 14, life below mm. water. Okay. Yeah. So as I worked at Thai Union, a lot of our work was in the oceans. It was vital to the business. I think if you look at the whole concept of sustainability, look at a seafood company. If there isn't any fish in the ocean, they won't have a business. Yeah. And so this is where a business actually needs to invest in a common resource like the oceans to make sure that they can have business continuity. Yeah. So through doing work on the oceans, which also has a very large human rights aspect, you know, workers at sea, yeah. uh, whether it's on fishing boats or on transportation and logistics and fishing, um, that is a big issue. But SDG 14, Life Below Water, I don't fully understand why it's the least invested of the sustainable development goals. You know, oceans yeah. cover 70% of our planet. Yeah. They help to regulate the temperature. They provide employment for literally billions of people around the world. So if I had to focus on just one, it is SDG 14. Very exciting. Just to let you in a little bit about my history as well, I did my undergraduate thesis and my PhD in fishing villages. I look at how the small scale fishermen in fact contest with the commercial scale for fishery resources and stock. And obviously the challenges I work in Thailand and Indonesia. So working with uh, Thai Union, yes. Spirits then. Yeah, we have yeah. a lot of things in common. Common, exactly. So I do absolutely understand what you meant by, you know, it's so important. It, it's, it's basically the basis of the business of Thai Union in terms of seafood supply chain, 
but very little people, very little investment has been looked into exactly how we maintain a sustainable stock for fisheries, how do we then, also, of course, you know, other issues like microplastics and, and pollution in the ocean has very been understudied in a sense. So you're absolutely right, I agree yes. with you. And one, one of the first big commitments that I made when I was with Thai Union was what we called our tuna commitment, and it was to invest in fishery improvement projects around the world. So we'd chosen seven different fishery improvement projects to yeah. invest $90 million over five years. And this was unusual for a business because unlike a farm or a factory, nobody owns the ocean. And yeah. so to establish a fishery improvement project, as you would know, it means getting all mm -hmm. of these different stakeholders Countries, together yeah and everybody agreeing this is what sustainability will look like. And in this case, we were using the baseline of the Marine Stewardship Council certification guidelines of mm -hmm. how you can move a fishery to uh, sustainability against those criteria. Yeah. But going back to communication and then collaboration, if you can't have collaboration, you won't actually get progress on any of these big complex issues. Yeah, and that's absolutely the most important. In my view, uh, goal number 17, partnership for the SDGs, which is really important. One of my work is also uh, studying how different stakeholders can come together to overcome the current challenges and the future challenges of the environment. In Thai Union, you, you, you seem to be doing a lot of very interesting projects. And, and I mean, our, our students, our audience would be very interested to hear a bit more in terms of what is the most exciting or interesting project that you're currently doing in your Thai Union company? So I should add the caveat that I no longer work for Thai Union. But one ah. of the most exciting things that I did at Thai Union was actually working with academia and business. Mm. So when I joined Thai Union, there was already an invitation from the Stockholm Resilience Center to come to a dialogue. And that dialogue was going to take place in the Maldives. So I was like, OK, I'm in. You don't yeah. need to convince me. And the Stockholm Resilience Centre, various academics had published a paper in, I think, PLOS One in 2015 on ocean stewardship mm -hmm. and how the keystone actors of the seafood industry actually should be acting as stewards for the ocean. And rather than leaving it as an academic paper, they decided to try to bring those actors together. So Thai Union was one of those very large companies uh, who were influential in ocean sustainability. And so I got to go to that first meeting in the Maldives to talk about ocean stewardship. And we had world famous academics, we had these business titans, and the Crown Princess of Sweden also came because wow. she was a patron for the UN SDGs and she has a passion for the oceans. And the resort that we went to, which was called Sodova, had this policy of no shoes, no news. So it meant you weren't connected to what was happening in the outside world. You weren't allowed to wear shoes. But we're sitting in this beautiful ocean environment talking about how we as seafood companies working with academia could really drive ocean stewardship. And that initiative is now called CBOS, Seafood Business for Ocean Stewardship. I think it's been running for five years. Mm. And I think it's probably one of the most inspirational and transformative projects that I've worked on. Lovely. And lots of impact too. Lots of impact. Yeah, very good. Uh, what are some of the ways that you personally protect, uh, practice sustainability? Because we talk about your job and what you've been doing in terms of sustainability, but in terms of your personal behavior, what have you been doing? 
So one of the things living in Singapore is I love the public transport. I don't own a car. Mm. I, I don't have a scooter. I take public transport everywhere I can go or I walk. And Singapore is so well connected. It's so easy to get around through buses and public transport. And I think these are the small changes that people can make. Often people wait and think, why doesn't the government make these changes? Actually, the government has in enabling there to be a really good public transport system. Mm. So through the things that you buy, and I try not to buy too many consumer items, you know, wear clothes for a long time, yeah. uh, to take public transport where possible. I've been a vegetarian uh, for pretty much all of my life. So it's great now that there's a lot more plant-based food available. So I think these small changes that individuals can make are, are what can really start to have a big impact when you look globally. Yeah, I totally agree. And in JSU, we are also doing a lot of different activities for our students and staff to encourage sustainability, uh, ranging from, you know, we have a recycle shoes project. We have a clean the beach student. We all go out kayaking with students to help to clean the beach, etc., etc. If you were able to travel back in time, what advice would you give your younger 21 years old self? Mm. I think appreciate how good you look at 21. That, that always <laughs> is a no-brainer. I think it's something that I probably have stuck with but it's follow your passions if there are areas that you are interested in work in them make your work your passion and then work actually doesn't seem like a chore it's something that you want to get up and, and make a difference in and do that every day yeah. i absolutely agree so do not listen to your parents to get into the banking sector no i'm just kidding but it is indeed true me personally my job i think it's not work at all because you're passionate about it. You can see the changes you're making and the impact you're creating for your community and your students as well. So thank you very much again, Darren. Thank you for your time. And this has been a wonderful discussion. I hope uh, other ways that listeners can find you online in terms of trying to connect with you. You're always welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's the social media platform that I'm most connected with. But yeah, I'd happily talk to any of your students. And I think the work that JCU does is so important. And actually, before I became an environmental engineer, I did consider studying marine biology at JCU. Ah, yes. But too bad we lost you to environmental <laughs> engineering. And with that, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you. And, you know, the podcast, I believe our audience will be very... Uh, Happy to hear about all your personal experience. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank mate. you. Cheers. Thanks.